show is more on impeachment and includes an interview I did with Mary Glennie from 88.5 WMNF out of Tampa, Florida. It was recorded on Wednesday, January 29th, and I hope you like it. I am so happy to welcome to the show uh, Cynthia Dill, and she's a civil rights lawyer, she's a journalist, she lives in Maine, uh, she's, uh, she's has a very popular podcast, she's a regular analyst for Maine Public Radio, and in Maine she's been involved very much with politics uh, from 2006 to 2012. She was in both the State House of Representatives, but also in the Senate. And then in 2012, I believe she won the primary to run uh, against, uh, well, I think replacing Olympia Snow. And uh, but she's been involved in many other things besides being a, vi- a very busy practicing civil rights attorney. Uh, she also was uh, worked with the Common Cause Digital Democracy Project. And in Women of the Year, she was in 2012 from Clamor Magazine. Cynthia Hill, welcome so much to the show. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I, you know, you're from Maine, and of course a lot of us are watching uh, with the impeachment proceedings, because that's what I wanted to talk to you about now, particularly with all of your political expertise in Maine. Uh, we're watching, particularly if there's any chance, that about four Republican senators just might want to have witnesses, etc., and uh, being from Maine, you must know a lot about Senator Collins. Well, Senator Collins is um, uh, in the spotlight again, and here in Maine now we've become used to that since she's just one of a you know, handful of so-called moderate Republicans. So the national spotlight is always on her. And yes, I do know Senator Collins. And tell me, if Senator Collins is considered a moderate Republican, uh, what is the usual Republican in Maine? Uh, well, you know, Maine, I think, is a little bit like the country in that it's divided along urban and um, suburban, you know, rural mm. lines. And so we have the northern part of the state that is very rural, that supported Donald Trump in the primary in 2016. And then we have the coast, including the city of Portland. And, um, you know, that's somewhat... Um, it, it is completely democratic for the most part. Um, and so we are a mixed state. Senator Collins has managed to uh, win with wide margins, um, north and south, and this is a challenge for her because I think with the Trump administration, things have really changed, as you know, dramatically in her party, and now she's really being put to the test, and um, there's a large effort, well-funded effort, to oust her. There's a really, uh, I think, hot, qualified Democratic uh, field of candidates. The likely winner is Sarah Gideon, who is the current Democratic Speaker of the House, uh, well-regarded, uh, well-funded Democrat. So Susan Collins has a challenge in November, unlike maybe what she's seen in the past. Her approval ratings have dropped substantially uh, since her last election. Um, and now, you know, right before her re-election bid, she's faced with this monumental, <laughs> you know, job of serving as a juror in um, an impeachment trial. So it, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to digest there. Does she have a primary challenge by a Republican? There's no primary, there's no serious primary challenge um, okay. at this point, no. There was some grumblings that there might be, but no, no candidate has come forward. And I would be very, very um, surprised if, if a Republican challenged her in the primary. And just a little bit more on uh, Senator Collins. Uh, you must have followed uh, Kavanaugh hearings. And, oh, yes. Uh, 
what was the reaction uh, to Collins uh, vote in, in that? What was the reaction to Maine to that? Well, the reaction, I think, was split, you know, very similarly the way the country was split. There was um, a, a large uh, group of people who were devastated by her vote. They really thought that the, you know, um, appointment of Justice Kavanaugh means that, you know, is the death knell of Roe versus Wade, and they were very angry and felt betrayed. Um, there's also a group of people who um, appreciated the work that the senator put into doing the job of weighing the evidence and advising and consenting and respect her for her decision and agree with her and are glad that um, Justice Kavanaugh is on the bench. So I think the jury's really out on where um, where that vote by Senator Collins is um, going to land in terms of the future because we just don't know yet what Justice Kavanaugh is going to do. I mean, there was a lot of fear-mongering that he will be the fifth vote to kill Roe versus Wade, but we just don't know that. And like we saw with Justice Roberts, people thought he was going to be the death knell in Obamacare, and he provided the fifth vote, you know, in a, at least one, and I think, I believe two, pretty significant cases. So a lot could change. There could be a big decision between now and the election where Justice Kavanaugh joins, you know, a group of liberals, and, and so her vote to appoint him won't be as um, damaging, but we'll see. And to get back to the impeachment proceedings, uh, I'm sure you've been following them very closely. I listened to your one podcast, and so obviously you have. And what is your impression so far? Have you been impressed by the Democratic presentation and also compare it to the Republican rebuttal? I wasn't. Trump's rebuttal. Yeah, I wasn't. But my initial reaction was that um, Congressman Nadler made a mistake by coming out so aggressively um, in his opening statement, and that made me that made my skin crawl just a, lot, a little bit. But other than that, I thought the Democrats did an excellent job presenting the evidence. I thought um, Adam Schiff was very eloquent, and all of the presenters, um, Congresswoman Garcia, I, I thought the presentation was excellent, and I understand the frustration of Republican senators who may have felt that it was redundant or repetitive, but my perspective is that because so much of the impeachment trial and the outcome depends on public opinion. I think the senators are really looking to public opinion about this and whether or not their constituents support them in their decision to convict and remove the president. And so the re I think the Democrats were smart to use their time to make the case because the American public is not going to pay attention every second. So every time somebody tuned in, they'd be seeing what the basic case was in maybe from a slightly different angle. So I thought that was effective. The Republicans, I thought—oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I want you to keep your thought. Well, just I thought that the Republicans did a pretty good job, although they um, dwelled so much on process. And to me, I don't know. I, I'm not—the argument that somehow the House process was defective is just not c compelling at all to me. I just don't see how that changes anything. And their argument that um, there has to be a crime— I don't think holds a lot of water. I mean, I thought that their presentation was pretty good, but not that great. And now I think they're, um, you know, what we're really going to see is, is when the rubber meets the road is where questions are answered and then the decision is made on Friday, I believe, whether or not there are going to be additional witnesses, and if so, how many and who are they and what they'll say. And, uh, you know, again, Cynthia, and uh, with your, all your legal expertise, that I'm not a lawyer, and so watching this, and, you know, I, I keep hearing about precedent, and you're referring to Clinton and referring to Nixon, et cetera. But actually, impeachment hasn't been used that much, at least not against presidents. Well, and, yeah, no, go ahead. Well, no, it, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, but that's exactly the thing, is that I think 
this idea that somehow there's this long line of precedence that the Senate has to file, you know, I believe that the bottom line is that if, if the Senate votes to acquit President Trump or if the Senate votes with a supermajority to convict and remove President Trump, that the idea that somehow the Supreme Court, which has five, you know, conservative justices, will somehow overturn the majority, supermajority will of a, of a Republican Senate is just ludicrous. So whatever the, the practical reality, in my view, is that whatever the vote in the Senate is, is going to be the end. And, the, the, and the, this idea that somehow precedent is going to be used to challenge what they want to do ultimately is just not that strong, in my view. I didn't even know the Supreme Court would have a final vote, so to speak. I thought this was really mainly a congressional house brings the charges and then the Senate uh, adjudicates, so to speak. I didn't know the Supreme Court would have any, uh, that there be any appeal in that kind of situation. Well, I think, and, and I don't know either, but the suggestion by Republicans in their defense is that, look, senators, you can't convict him because it's in a violation of the Constitution. Well, the only body, I mean, this goes back to Marbury versus Madison, the only, you know, it, the only way we know something is a violation of the Constitution is if the United States Supreme Court says it is. So it's almost like they're challenging the Senate, like you can't vote to uh, convict and remove him because it's unconstitutional. Well, that means, I guess, they would they would challenge it. The White House would, you know, Donald Trump would challenge the um, the Senate conviction and removal in the Supreme Court. That, that's my point, is that I don't, that's why I don't think the Republican argument is very compelling, because it's just a it's kind of a process argument. I think they, their argument that, their best argument is that if you assume the facts to be true, that this was the call, you read the transcript, that the behavior itself doesn't rise to an you know, a level of an impeachable offense. That's the Republican's strongest argument, and that's something that the senators are just going to have to decide. And that's why I think they need this additional evidence of people who were present, who have personal knowledge of what they viewed in um, in these conversations and what they heard the president say were his motives or what they heard other people say his motives were. That's, so my belief is that Susan Collins, the main senator, is going to join with Democrats and enough Republicans. There need to be four because there's 47 Democrats. They need to have a majority vote to get additional witnesses that that vote will be taken, that she will support additional witnesses. But then I don't I can't predict what she'll do because we don't know what the evidence is, but she did vote to acquit Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton um, because I believe her reason was is because she you know, didn't feel that the alleged crime ro rose to the level of an impeachable offense. So, you know, go ahead. And, and, and you know, this is what I find, again, as a non-lawyer, which is so fascinating because to me, as, as I said, that there really isn't that much precedent. We haven't had that many presidents, you know, impeached and either convicted or not convicted because Nixon resigned. Uh, but I, I realize in really watching this, that this is a much, this is as much a really examination or a real picture, so to speak, of our of our whole functioning of Congress and and our our political system at the federal level. And so we're watching. You know, really, uh, the challenge of the division of powers. We're watching the whole, you might say, sense of Congress and rulemaking uh, in in this whole trial. And, uh, you know, that it's as much a reflection on all of us that these are the people we have represented or, or voted for to rep represent us. And so I'm finding, regardless of the outcome, to me it's been very, very valuable uh, because when you do have the kind of transgressions that I happen to be looking at, what Trump has done, 
uh, that this is a real challenge to me of our sense of division of powers. And so in that sense, no matter what the outcome, uh, I know with Truman that, you know, it kind of backed him up and he, he realized he had to go to a higher standard. If nothing else, I think this has been very valuable. I agree, and it's been a huge civics lesson for the American public, and it'll be interesting to see what it does for turnout in the 2020 election. I mean, it'd be nice to think that the two are separate, but I do think there's, of course, you know, relation, and um, it's been a huge exercise in democracy. It's been a huge challenge, I think, for the media um, to fairly, um, and, you know, unbiasedly report, but they've do, been trying to do a good job um, and we'll see if what the outcome is, like you said. But I agree, there's been such value, and I think that the institutions of the American government appear to be holding together. I said earlier in another interview that I think it would behoove the president and the White House to say publicly that they would support and adhere to whatever outcome the Senate you know, decides to give the American public confidence in the system. But it has been um, fascinating. Yeah, and you know, I'm, and again, we're talking to Cynthia Gill. As you can see, she's a very fine lawyer, but civil rights lawyer, but also has a lot of political experience, literally on the ground, as uh, both a representative and a senator in state, uh, Maine, and just all kinds of involvement in uh, civic projects all the way around. Uh, and, 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 and you know, that I find it really fascinating uh, is that I wonder from the start, because there you've got this Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who's presiding. And tell me, do you think that if they decide not to have witnesses, because they could decide that, could he intervene and in the sense of judicial fairness, or like most of us, we know it's technically not a criminal trial, uh, but we don't really make that much distinction. And to us, you know, a trial involves witnesses, it involves evidence, it involves questioning, and so every jurors can listen. Uh, and could, could Chief Justice Roberts uh, say that he really felt in the determination to protect justice but there should be witnesses called. Could he have any say? I know it wouldn't be a vote, but I don't is believe. There any yeah, I don't believe you don't so. Think he would. No, I really you don't. don't. I don't think he does. I think the Senate, you know, but the constitutional language about the House has this, you know, exclusive um, power to impeach, and the Senate has, I believe, the exclusive power to run the trial. They've already voted on the rules, and um, they're going to take votes on the process. And it would be extraordinarily. I think, unusual for the Chief Justice to somehow weigh in if a majority of the senators have decided they don't want witnesses. I think that would be, we, I don't think we would, would should expect that. And so, in a sense, it's a subjective, because you don't have to have, it's not a crime that they have to commit, at least as I understand it, Dershowitz notwithstanding. Uh, and so you don't necessarily have to have the evidence. It's a, it's a judgment call by a senator. Do you think this rises to the level, whatever that is? of high crimes and misdemeanors, and so it, it, it's, it, it's really it, it kind of in a way with these impeachment uh, proceedings, you kind of write the rules in the context of your time as it's going along. Well, there, it's not that there isn't evidence, it's just the, the senators have to decide whether or not they have enough evidence to reach a conclusion on, on the ultimate questions of fact. I mean, they're the, you know, the, the ultimate deciders. And so there is evidence because there's been the sworn testimony of the witnesses that the House managers have presented. But I think what, you know, what Senator Collins has said publicly is that there's some questions that remain, that there's some ambiguity, and that we'll see first whether or not the written question procedure that's going to take place next, where the parties have opportunities to write questions, submit them to the Chief Justice, and have the part, you know, have the different sides answer. 
if after that process there's still questions in enough senators' minds, 51, um, you know, that they want to have John Bolton testify live or they want to take another measure. I know there's talk among some senators to perhaps as a plan B, you know, just have the Bolton manuscript in a room somewhere to review. I can't imagine that being satisfactory, though, if the whole reason why you want to have somebody testify is so that you can have cross-examination. I mean, that's like the, you know, the cornerstone of the American judicial process of, you know, getting at the truth is cross-examination. So it seems unlikely that they would just, if they want, <laughs> you know, if they want more, it seems like they want both sides. And, and wouldn't that deny all of us? Because we wouldn't have privies to that. Exactly. And so we just have to take their interpretations once again. And so now we or go into the wait and buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so we go into the question period, and as you just explained, you know, I guess I think Roberts has said that five minutes, and that's what they did, I think, Rehnquist did. Uh, and so he's saying that he thought that was a good plan, et cetera. And tell me, uh, if you had questions, what questions would you like to ask? Oh, wow, that is a good question. You know, I can't really, off the top of my head, nothing really comes to mind. I feel like I um, know, but I think what I'd like to just hear is I would like to hear John Bolton um, testify because it seems to me that he has um, information that is relevant and um, I just don't see why we wouldn't. So what questions I would ask him is just why it is he believes there was a quid pro quo. <laughs> you know, he, he's reached he's reached that conclusion as as a witness and as a um, uh, uh, somebody working for the president at a very high level. And I would just be curious why. But what written questions? I I don't know. I couldn't right now tell you. Well, that's quite all right. And you know, I was impressed. I was listening to your podcast, and you were saying I was impressed when you were saying that you know you weren't really sure that there really was enough really evidence, et cetera, or that's not the right word, but anyway, that but you were impressed with the, the implications of the national security with the Ukraine and with their war against Russia and, you know, the very serious involvement and Congress appropriated these funds, et cetera. Could you go through that? Because to me, that was important. Yeah, I think when the first, uh, you know, when we first heard about this call and the suggestion that there was this quid pro quo, it concerned me greatly, but um, I was thinking it was just another example of the president taking advantage of his position to, you know, line his own pockets, that it was about money and, and him getting power, and it seemed kind of sneaky and um, unethical, but then when I heard more about why it was <laughs> that, you know, the Congress had authorized this $400 million in aid and heard about the, or just appreciated more the history of the Ukrainian people and the new president. And, you know, it just it really concerned me that, you know, we know from the Mueller investigation that Russia did try to interfere with the election. I know conservatives will say, yeah, and Mueller also found that the campaign didn't collude with Russia. But setting that aside, the fact is Russia tried to interfere with the election. Ukraine you know, it is they they also annexed Crimea, and they are our adversary and our enemy, and at war with Ukraine. And so, um, it just struck me that this is serious business if we're taking money that's supposed to go to our protection. I mean, that's our, our national security at interest. We're not helping the Ukrainian people just because we're good people. It's because, you know, they're uh, they stand for what, or they're trying to stand for what we stand for, be our allies in a fight for democracy and freedom across the world. And so it just, 
it rose the level of you know importance to the accusation and to the and to the facts. Well, with your background, I'm I think that your opinion really does matter a lot. And so again, we've been talking to Cynthia Dill, and as you can tell, she's quite a, a legal expert and from Maine, both as a politician with the representatives in the Senate, also ran for the Senate. And tell me, I, you know, I think of Maine in a lot of ways, but uh, at your website, uh, are you that avid of a surfer? <laughs> no, actually, I'm not. <laughs> oh, okay. That's well, a, great. I know. I took the photo. I think it's a great photo. I took the it photo. Is. Yes, yes, oh. but I do. But we spend a lot of time on the ocean, and um, a lot of and that's a friend who serves. So, um, yeah. Oh, okay, uh, and then one one other quick question because you've got an excellent podcast. Uh, but Smugsy, I have to ask a little bit. What is Smugsy? Smugsy is a fictional character that um, that I portray in um, in connection with a uh, kind of a comedy radio show that is pre- predominantly dominated by conservative men <laughs> who play parody characters. So it's it's it, a, a young man, Steve Robinson from Maine, is the executive producer of this show, and he invited me to be on the show, and I got, got sucked in, and it's not for everybody. It's, it's, um, it's almost obscene, but I write fiction for it, and Smugsy is a character. She's a parody account on Twitter, and she's an outspoken... She speaks her mind, um, parody account, and um, follow her on Twitter, Twitter at Smugsy Girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that sounds like a marvelous diversion, and she sounds like my kind of woman. If she speaks her mind, is not afraid to get out there. And exactly. Be <laughs> That's really necessary now in our times, particularly. So, Cynthia Diallo, thank you so much for all your work and giving us this time today. I really appreciate your insight. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You take care. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. Thanks so much.